Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm hosting Gregory Lasky, author of Untimely Democracy, The Politics of Progress After Slavery, recently published by Oxford University Press. This is a complex and sophisticated text that will be quite appealing to my colleagues, especially in political theory and philosophy, but also important to consider in context of the political development of the United States. Lasky explores the idea of temporality in context of American democracy and democracy generally, and the concept of progress as we often consider it in relation to post-slavery America. Lasky is approaching these complex theoretical considerations through post-Civil War writers like Stephen Crane, Pauline Hopkins, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Frederick Douglass, among others. The thrust of this exploration is to reposition, in a sense, the concept of racial progress and the quest for liberty, recasting our often embedded national myths surrounding the arc of justice bending in a direction, a direction towards justice. Lasky's examination is multilayered and examines these written and rhetorical works, especially within an analysis that questions our understanding of time, memory, recollection, and progress as a forward-only moving trajectory. But I will also ask him to explain his thesis and his work a bit more as we discuss the aptly titled Untimely Democracy. But first, I would like to ask Greg Lasky to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Lily. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be um, part of this podcast. I love the New Books Network. My pleasure. So I am um, an assistant professor of English at the United States Air Force Academy, and I'm currently uh, on a visiting faculty appointment at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, my hometown. And so I am um, thrilled to be there. I did my PhD in English, focusing on American and African American literature at Northwestern University. And this book on timely democracy is a um, later iteration of my PhD dissertation, which looked at theories of temporality um, in the writings of postbellum African American and American authors and activists. And so this is the revised version over the course of, you know, five, six more years, uh, a decade all told, um, thinking about theories of time, the political implications of time um, in American literature, largely of the second half of the 19th century. And so you're coming to this study, this analysis with a number of different threads that you're unpackaging, and I would say reassembling. Um, In the process, you're taking the reader on a journey through concepts of temporal distinctions or horizons, as you call them, within a democratic quest. But you also note that the threads come together in a kind of third way, as you explain it early in the book. This is the untimely democracy, neither clear progress nor a forgetting of the past, but an embracing of it without remaining in it. Can you explain to our listening audience what you mean by this concept of untimely democracy? Sure. I think um, 
To begin with, maybe one of the ways to consider untimely democracy is to situate it within the historical moment that I study in the book, which is the second half of the 19th century. It's a period that Rayford Logan, writing in the 1950s, 50s, called the nadir of American racial history. And that's the moment that we understand from our, um, our own studies as the Jim Crow era of segregation, of intense racial exclusion, violence, lynching, and... The nadir, of course, is a low point, and I wanted to think about what sort of politics might emerge from this moment in American history. And so this is a time that W.B. Du Bois refers to as second slavery. And if you think about that notion of second slavery, this is an idea of recurrence, of repetition, thinking about Jim Crow segregation as a return of racial slavery. And so the question I ask in the book is, what can we do with that sort of mode of time, which is not progressive, it's recursive. It even gives rise to what I call stasis, moments of time that seem to stand still when the past and present overlap. And that doesn't fit, those kinds of time don't fit nicely within the standard story that we tell about American democracy, which I suggest is tethered to this notion of steady progress. And as you mentioned, this idea that time always moves forward, that things are getting better, the past days in the past, um, even if you have to sort of disavow or ignore it. So what kind of democracy can emerge if we think not about forward movement, if we don't shut the door on the past and close one chapter of history? And that's this idea that I come to of untimely democracy that can think not just about the present, and especially not just about the future as the horizon for political action, but what would happen if you took what Du Bois calls the present past. And in The Souls of Black Folk, he makes that term a compound noun. It's hyphenated, present past. So what kind of political action, what theories of democracy can we have if we embrace this idea of a persistent past? And how would that change the story of the narrative um, of American democracy that we tell. And and so you pay particular attention to the post period through to the turn of the century, as you note, also highlighting the impact that aspects of industrialization were having on citizens by providing train schedules and, and these sort of small aspects of life that sort of moved our thinking as individuals, as, as citizens, as beings on earth. Um, to more contemporary understandings of time. And I want to ask you, because this is clearly very important to your work, what does our daily structure around time and, and our understanding of this concept connect to this kind of idea of progress and linear movement, but also this past-present um, understanding of stasis that is sort of embedded in many of the writings that you're exploring in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways to consider time is just in our daily lives is that it's very hard not to think about it in a linear progressive fashion, right? You think about calendars, clocks, appointments. There's always a sense that um, time is moving forward or you're thinking about the next agenda item, even though in, in, in other aspects of our lives, there's lots of emphasis on recursive time or nonlinear modes. Think about memory. Um, you might be in one meeting and be thinking about something that happened at home earlier or last night. And so the second half of the 19th century 
is a time when there was a sort of official sanction given to that notion of temporality as linear and progressive. One of the things I talk about in the book is standard railway time, um, which is tied up with the regulation and really the making the same of time concepts across the nation. But this is also a moment where historians have noted that public clocks become important. And so this idea of timeliness and citizenship get connected um, in an important way at this era in history. I'd say from the perspective of race, progress after the Civil War and after slavery is also really tied up to a progressive notion of time. So one of the sort of kinds of texts that appears quite regularly um, in the postbellum moment are racial progress tracts. And so there are books called The Progress of the Race, and what they're wanting to do is demonstrate um, African-American achievement. And from one aspect, we can find that totally necessary and understandable to combat the racist notions that were continue to be, uh, they were were continually perpetuated even after legal emancipation. And so there was an attempt to think about how many black doctors there were, how different life was for black Americans before and after slavery. And all of these texts are trying to do this work of proving racial progress in this racist structure, but they're also attached to this notion of progress as different The past is different from the present. Slavery is different from freedom. And of course, in one way it is, but in other ways, some of the writers and activists that I'm thinking about are finding it important to contest that notion of time. And as I said a moment ago, this idea of timeliness and citizenship, these two things are um, incredibly tightly interwoven, so much so that presidents, Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, and their inaugural addresses in the um, late 1800s they're explicitly saying it's time to put the past of slavery away. And this gets taken up by black leaders like Booker T. Washington. And so the tension for the writers that I'm thinking about is how do you maintain a commitment to progress as a goal without then acceding to a progressive time in the same way? And that's that's the central tension in what you're looking at in terms of the the host of writers that you're exploring in the book, and that that's also I think really important to think about um, from the side of political theorists who are again sort of trying to work on this concept of democracy and citizenship um, and different understandings for obviously different people. I mean, I have this conversation with my students when we talk about the end of the Civil War and suddenly people were no longer slaves. They were people. <laughs> and, and in a blink of an eye, but what does that actually mean? And I and I found your work really um, ex- exciting to think about because you go into this question of what did it actually mean? Um, and how did, how did it shape and how did, how did people think about it? Um, so I wanted to ask you about sort of moving through this concept of time and temporality. You note that alternative temporalities found particularly rich expression in the literature of the era. And you also mentioned the normative time of national politics. Can you explain sort of why the sort of literature of the era was useful um, and a place for a kind of exploring these, con- these sort of complex tensions? 
one way to consider what the work of literature does, the political work of literature, is that it gives an alternative way to imagine the present. And you could also extend that to an alternative way of imagining the past or the future. Um, And so I think a lot of, uh, I think, you tell me, a lot of um, politically-minded literary scholars and maybe literary-minded political theorists have turned to the work of Jacques Ranciere to think about the relationship between aesthetics and politics. And, And his notion is that this central idea of these two spheres, aesthetics and politics, are inextricably intertwined. They're doing the same work. And so someone who does 19th century American literary studies, a professor at Penn State named Chris Castigula, has a book um, that is about the practices of hope and how does literature enable imagining possibilities that may not be material in a certain moment, but it, it literature may enable the making material of those possibilities. And so I would say that the writers I'm looking at are turning to literature, and I even define that more broadly as narrative. It may be letter writing, it may be autobiographical writing, but it's really about narrating the relationship between past, present, and future. How, in the form of writing, do you structure those three temporal domains? Is it past, present, future in that linear progressive mode? Or is it for someone like Du Bois or Frederick Douglass? Do you reorder those temporalities? And what are the effects politically, socially of that reordering? And so the other thing I should mention is that a moment ago, I said that this idea of the normative time of national politics is indebted to linear and progressive temporality. And I would say that even within the African-American writers um, and thinkers and leaders of this moment, this idea of untimely democracy is anomalous. So probably Booker T. Washington, someone like Alexander Crummel, some of the central uh, postbellum political leaders um, who are African-American are are very much also invested in this idea of linear progressive time. And so the writers that I'm thinking about are creating a counter discourse. They are working against the grain and they're using their narratives to give voice to this alternative temporality, to these alternative ways of defining what's possible. How can you imagine possibility when there, in this moment, may not seem to be possibility, especially if you think about the aim of the Civil War, abolition, the Reconstruction and Civil War amendments. At this moment of the nadir, those promises seem to have disappeared, or at least there is not the sort of commitment um, that was required to make these promises material. And so how do you think about possibility in this moment when possibility seems um, drained, denied, and sapped? And and I have two questions um, to sort of push you on a little bit more. Um, the first one, of course, is, you know, as you just said, there were, there were um, leaders of African-Americans, political leaders at the time, um, who were looking at this kind of linear progress. But your book, as you know, it is a kind of counter discourse. So for r- listeners and potential readers of your book, who are the writers that frame your narrative and analysis? And why do you focus on these particular writers? You have a group of them um, and you go through the sort of book with them um, and you open, you know, you open the book with Whitman, of course, and also you, you note Jefferson early on. Um, but who are the writers of this counter discourse? So I think that 
potentially the most important writer is Pauline Hopkins. And she's a name that probably hasn't gotten as much attention even in American and African-American literary studies as I think she should. But she was a prolific uh, dramatist. She was an actor self, uh, a writer for novels, which I talk about in in my book. Uh, She was the editor of a publication called The Colored American Magazine. And in fact, late in her career, uh, conflicted, found herself in conflict, I should say, with Booker T. Washington, who wanted a sort of different kind of coverage of African-American cultural politics, something um, that is uh, more conservative in its appeal uh, than Pauline Hopkins wanted to do. And so she was finally ousted from um, her editorial role in that magazine. But to me, I want to read Pauline Hopkins in the way that we've come to understand W.B. Du Bois. And I mean both uh, literary scholars and political philosophers. We think about the souls of black folk. We think about black reconstruction, uh, not just as historical literary texts, but as texts that are offering a serious political philosophy, as we should think about Du Bois in that way. But Pauline Hopkins is writing alongside Du Bois um, at the very two years before The Souls of Black Folk. She publishes um, her novel called Contending Forces. And we have yet to understand her work as a serious political philosophy. And I think we should, because essentially what she is confronting is as abolitionist fervor fades, and especially in the postbellum moment when um, the support of the North in respect to lynching and problems confronting black Americans very urgently in the South starts to uh, fade, she is trying to understand how do we consider the relationship not just between North and South, but between past and present. And if you read Contending Forces, you'll see that the novel is structured um, in, in a past antebellum moment, and the present moment is in the postbellum era. But the whole work of the novel is to collapse the differences between characters and through the plot of these two moments. And so for me, this question is, what happens when you have the overlap between past and present almost to the degree that it's impossible in some ways to distinguish the differences between them? And that's essentially what Hopkins asserts in the preface to her novel. She says that the difference between past and present, the difference between slavery and freedom, is so slight as to be scarcely worth mentioning. And that's a sort of arresting assertion if you think about it from Uh, a political philosophical perspective. How do you consider not just progress, but but to go back to the narrative of American democracy, which is so invested in a break with the past, how do you fit that sort of statement into American democratic theory? And so she is someone who appears at the end of my book, but I think that she is one of the central theorists of untimely democracy. And so I save her for the end because um, she sort of provides the summa of the of the of the study, um, but before her, I, I think a little bit about Frederick Douglass and his writings after the Civil War, which we haven't considered as much as uh, some of his more famous antebellum writings. I think about Stephen Crane in the context of discourses of reparation and redress. Uh, I consider Sutton Griggs and Charles W. Chestnut and approach them as theorists of untimely democracy by focusing in particular on optimism and pessimism. Uh, And then I end the book with a coda that brings these questions of democracy and time into the 20th and 21st centuries by considering Ralph Ellison, Spike Lee, and uh, Barack Obama in the epilogue. 
And and so I I wanted to to move a little bit um, from the writers themselves to also what you are talking about as the importance of this political of this political moment or sort of extended moment. Um, and you, and you note that the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th century was a kind of inflection point as, and also as, uh, a nadir. And historically, this is a period growing out of the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, as you highlight, and the conclusion of Reconstruction, the advent of Jim Crow, um, and the constraining of civil rights and liberties, particularly for African Americans. But your thesis suggests that this might be a place to examine the discourse around um, the life of African Americans as expressed by Black and non-Black writers and thinkers. Um, and you dive into this period of political stagnation and, and you sort of consider it. And I'm really curious as to what it was about this particular period that, you know, you talk about it as a point of, of stasis, in fact. Um, and, and what it generated in terms of the discourse around the quest for liberty, if you will. Yeah, I think um, one of the reasons the period is important uh, is what you've already alluded to, which is this moment is a time of standardization, industrialization, and essentially the regulation of temporality so that there is a connection between the time of politics, the time of um, national politics, and linear progressive time. So there's really a conflation between these two. And of course, this happens just at the moment when we have an immediate past that is itself unresolved, which is the past of racial slavery, uh, perpetuated and made new in the structures of Jim Crow. And so the stakes of seeing these two systems, racial slavery on the one hand and Jim Crow segregation on the other, as the same or different, is itself a political question that is quite fraught. And so the, the national narrative would be to see these two as different. One of the things I talk about is some of the Supreme Court cases, the 1883 civil rights cases, for instance, in which the um, majority opinion makes an explicit case that post-bellum racial discrimination, keeping someone from lodging at a hotel, for instance, um, has nothing to do with the history of racial slavery in the United States. And so the official sanction of this temporality that would divide past and present um, is really important. And that's why this counter discourse, this counter narrative in the literature of the era, I think has a special urgency. But I also want to back up and say that as someone who works on 19th century American literary studies, there is a treating of synonymous of the antebellum era with the 19th century as a period. And so as I wrote the book and considered this incredibly rich moment of the second half of the 19th century, and especially the final decades, one of the questions I have, which is now a concern, and I sometimes joke it's my new scholarly axe to grind, is why do we, why do we think about the antebellum era so often in our teaching and our research? And, and one of my um, hypotheses is that there's just a way of thinking about the run-up to the Civil War and abolitionism as more exciting, as more interested, interesting for thinking about aesthetics and politics and theorizing democracy. But what happens with the after? What happens with the post? Um, in this moment, as you mentioned, this is one of decline. It's one of stasis. 
Um, the famous name given to it, of course, is the Nadir, which does not inspire um, necessarily much uh, political energy or excitement, though I want to change that, I hope, uh, through the book. Um, and I really think that the standard narratives we, we tell about slavery, abolition, racial progress, democracy, change significantly if we consider that this era that we know as the 19th century is much more than just the antebellum moment. And so part of the post-Civil War history is something that I think we need to reclaim and recover, not just because there's so much there in terms of um, literature and politics, but because what is there should change the way we think about these meta-narratives that we've come to associate with American politics and literature. Democracy, progress are, are two of the most important key words. And and so and I mean I think you're right. I mean I think that there is this kind of holding on to that the antebellum period as as you know a sort of rush um you know th- through the political events and through the writings of people like Twain um and so forth that there that there is the you know sort of the Kansas Nebraska Act and and the 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 various sort of events of the time and then after the war yeah, everything went back to normal in a certain sense um and yet not <laughs> but but it's complicated and i think your book goes through the really the uh, sort of unpacking some of those complications and why we think about them the way we do which is really what's interesting to me is getting at why we do think about them what are we connected to as citizens and and as as keepers of our history um, why do we want to have that kind of faith? Obviously, we want to see this line of progress. Um, so I would ask you then, um, as you talk about it in your book, you explain that you're weaving together the idea of race, of, of democracy, and, a, and of temporality, which aren't necessarily things that are always combined. <laughs> um, and so I'm I'm curious also in terms of your your analysis and the the writers that you're exploring what what do you mean by democracy here and what do you mean by its connection to temporality and race Yes so what I mean by democracy is liberty and equality and a lot of great political work recently I'm thinking about Danielle Allen's our declaration has asked us to reconsider the relationship between liberty and equality, um, not just as antagonistic, but as mutually supporting and mutually necessary. And I would say that in untimely democracy, I am asking what happens if we add a third term to this basic grammar of American democracy. So not just liberty and equality, but also temporality. What happens when we realize that these two terms that constitute our definition of democracy don't exist in a neutral space with respect to time. That liberty and equality, the project of seeking democracy and gaining these ends, exists in a sort of time. And probably too often, I think, when we talk about democracy, we tend to make time neutral. We bracket it. Or rather than bracketing it, we just assume that a linear progressive idea of time Um, is sort of the norm, and it becomes almost invisible, and it has a sort of privilege. And in the book, then, I try to think about 
what would happen if you place the struggle for democracy in this one historical period as a case study within time? And one of the things you recognize, I think, that first of all, you have to pluralize your idea of what time is. You have this contest in the postbellum period between the standard normative linear progressive time and these other temporalities, um, which are tied up with questions of memory, with the afterlife of slavery, um, with the static time that someone like Pauline Hopkins theorizes when she erases distinctions between an act of lynching after civil war and racial slavery in the antebellum period. And so I think if you pluralize time, things get a lot more complicated, but they also get a lot more democratic. And there I risk using right an adjective to define um, democracy in the first place. But if you think about one of the goals of democratic politics is inclusion, then I do think you have to consider that not every narrative of time serves every citizen equally. And people like Sheldon Wolin and Bonnie Honig in political philosophy have thought about these questions in important ways. And so my task in the book is to try to bring this conversation about democracy and this conversation about time into dialogue and to look at it through a lens and a moment um, that, as I have mentioned earlier, hasn't really been considered, um, but is incredibly rich for bringing these three key words together. And I hope um, that what I have done is try to elevate the voices of these authors and activists and make them theorists of democracy. Um, And that's where I get this notion in the title of my book of untimely democracy. And, and so I, I mean, I think that, I think that the, the question is really fascinating and you're, you're, you know, sort of on trying to untangle parts of it in the book is, is, is really helpful in terms of bringing forward authors who are, as you know, not necessarily considered, um, when we think about authors from the, the 1800s or the 1900s, um, but interestingly, you begin <laughs> with Jefferson, as yes. as we all do, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Jefferson and Du Bois. Um, so I asked to some degree, um, why is this the starting point? Yes, no, it's an excellent question. And it's one um, that I really thought about, particularly also because, as you noted, I begin with Whitman. And so for a book, I begin with Whitman in my introduction and then move on to Jefferson and Du Bois. And one of the worries I had is, you know, in a study that is trying to um, use these mostly black writers to theorize democracy, why begin essentially with these white voices? I think in the case of Jefferson, um, I use him because he really is in dialogue with W.B. Du Bois um, across time and, and across, uh, across historical progression. And I think for, for me, Jefferson is so important to what I refer to as the standard narrative of American democracy. Um, Jefferson is so aware of all the tensions, um, as we know from reading notes on the state of Virginia, between an American democracy committed to slavery and the idea of striving for a project of equality and liberty. And as we know, right, the way he solves that is essentially by excising um, the black population from, from the United States. And I think that that excision is part of his commitment to 
progress. Right? In my reading, Jefferson's version of democracy can't be extricated from progressive time, right? That much like those of his era, this idea of a better future and that the past receding into the past um, is, is so shot through their thinking and writing. And I read Jefferson in dialogue with Du Bois as someone, Du Bois in this case, who needs to, who necessarily is living in the era that Jefferson did not have to live in, but also potentially could not imagine. So what happens when in Du Bois is the souls of black folk, you have this phrase, this second slavery, right? This is not something that Jefferson's theory of democracy can respond to easily. And so it was important for me to bring Jefferson and Du Bois into dialogue at the beginning of the book, also because um, I think that both of them don't necessarily succeed in answering this question of what democracy can do with non-productive modes of time. Du Bois thinks through this question in his characteristically brilliant way, um, I think, but by the ends of Souls of Black Folk, he doesn't necessarily have an answer. And so I begin the book by setting up this problem um, with Jefferson representing the sort of standard linear progress narrative of democracy, Du Bois questioning it, Du Bois recognizing that that narrative cannot serve African-Americans in his moment, but not really coming up with a different narrative. And so you have to wait to the end of the book in my chapter on Hopkins, um, where I think she tries to reconcile uh, this idea of a commitment to progress and a commitment democracy that doesn't have to accept progressive time. And I mean, I think that that's that. I mean, particularly the differences also of white writers like Jefferson, who is so committed to this kind of enlightenment thinking and and the surge of progress and the reality of the lives of many of the African American writers who you integrate, which is not that. Um, and I think that's really important in terms of how you work through the narrative of the book. And so I was going to just ask you a little bit about the structure of the book itself. You know, we've talked about sort of the introductory section and, and, and Jefferson and Du Bois, um, but then you go through Douglas and others. And so how did you come to structure the book as you did? Um, and what is the thesis of each section? Um, as you say, you, you sort of have the, the centerpiece coda of Pauline Hopkins' discussion, um, as well as an epilogue that brings us to the contemporary period. Um, but but what are you doing in weaving the threads that you do throughout the book? So one of the structural questions I thought a lot about um, as I wrote the book was, is this going to be a book that sort of tells the whole story of democracy, race, and time from Jefferson to the present. And I really wanted to write that sort of book at first, and then I realized, you know, practically how harder it'd be, but also that I would be alighting perhaps what I see as the contribution of these post-bellum thinkers and activists. And so what I decided to do was make the heart of the book really about the nadir and begin with Jefferson to show how um, foundational this narrative is. But really the structure of the book are these five chapters, um, each of which take up 
a different problem of untimely democracy. And so we mentioned already that I begin with Jefferson and Du Bois to sort of set the grammar and the terms of the conversation. But then I move on to this question of narration. So if the past of slavery continues to recur, how would you narrate that? And I take up that question by looking at Frederick Douglass's final autobiography, which he issues in three different versions. And essentially what I argue in that chapter is that Douglas really wants to write a basic narrative in which the past stays in the past and the present is the present and the future is a better improved future. That's what Douglas wanted to write. That's what, of course, he fought for in um, his abolition involvement. But when he tries to write Life and Times in the final decades of the 19th century, he can't do it. Jim Crow emerges, the Supreme Court decision of 1883 uh, strikes a blow at civil rights. And so in the book, he says he finds himself called again to testify, to come to the witness stand in support of his race. And the whole narrative doesn't work within this linear frame. And so what I explore in that chapter is what would it mean to narrate a past that won't stay past? Uh, I then move on to this philosophical question of redress and reparation, um, and how do you explain what is wrong with a problem that doesn't seem, according to official structures, to be a problem. And so I look um, in particular at ex-slave pension activism. There is this uh, whole exciting, vibrant movement led in part by a woman named Callie House, who herself is a formerly enslaved person. And she and her colleagues tried to establish an ex-slave pension system on the model of the Union soldier pension system. And their efforts are um, taken seriously enough by the United States government and the post office that uh, the post office department and the attorney's shut down their operations through the mail, and House is actually jailed. I read that movement in relation to um, Stephen Crane, a white author uh, who we haven't really thought about as politically progressive at all, but he uh, writes this striking narrative called The Monster in 1898, which is about a black character um, who is not enslaved. The novella is set in the North, but all of the trappings of racial servitude are part of the of the novel. And so I think about that as a philosophical meditation on trying to repair and redress a problem that um, for many seems no longer to be a problem. I then move on to a chapter on questions of optimism and pessimism. And I think about that pervasive discourse, which is racialized in this moment, um, in which one would have to be racially optimistic to support to support this idea of an inclusive democracy, uh, an integrated democracy with African Americans um, at the center, and then pessimism, which becomes a sort of um, deterministic narrative uh, that serves racist ends, essentially this Jim Crow idea that um, African Americans were regressing and disappearing and couldn't be fully integrated citizens. I take that up by looking at two authors, Sutton Griggs and Charles Chestnut, who contest that binary between optimism and pessimism in this moment and theorize new ways of thinking about um, failure, hope, and possibility through their novels. I end uh, the core section of the study with the chapter on Pauline Hopkins, who, as we talked about uh, a few moments ago, really becomes the central political theorist of untimely democracy, 
by bringing together all the threads of the book. And as I suggest, for me, becomes sort of uh, the Du Bois of untimely democracy. If Du Bois has given us these crucial notions of the veil and double consciousness, I want us to understand Hopkins um, as doing the same by rethinking that standard notion of progress beginning with Jefferson as requiring a break with the past. For Hopkins, um, progress is the goal, but a progressive course, a timeline of past first, present, and future last need not be the way to achieve progress. And in fact, it may not be the best way. And then I conclude, as you mentioned, with an epilogue that brings these questions to the present and thinks um, about the famous speech on race that Barack Obama gives um, in his presidential campaign. And really, I argue that my book gives us the backstory to that idea of racialized politics and time that come to the fore in the speech on race, um, that there's a much longer story uh, that these postbellum black authors and activists thought about in their own moment, and that our sense of time at present can be enriched um, by knowing the stories that these writers uh, tell. And and I mean, I think this, this is, it's a great book to sort of get that backstory, as you say, and to also think about these complex questions of sort of understanding democracy in a sort of time and not time sort of conceptualization. Um, and I, and I really, I really found that fascinating and useful to think about as a political theorist and as somebody myself who uses literature to explore questions of politics. Um, so as you said, it, it was going to be a much bigger book, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, there's only so much time in a day as it were. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I assume that it left you with some questions that you wanted to then pursue. So what are you working on now? Uh, so thank you for asking. Two things. I just finished a forum on democracy in the American 19th century that I co-edited with uh, my colleague, Bert Emerson, and it's out in a journal called J19, uh, which is published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And it's looking at what the 19th century can teach us about democracy. And by us, I mean a pretty inclusive group. It, it's written um, with an interdisciplinary audience in mind. Uh, I taught a, a, a a section of the form written by the political theorist Danielle Allen, who asks us to think about that tension between is America a democracy or is a republic? And she does this wonderful historicizing reading of that question that leads us back to Hamilton and the founding moment. Um, and it, it, it really is something I think that um, lots of teachers, students, scholars can benefit from. So I'd ask everyone to check that out um, because I'm really excited about some of the contributions in that forum. But my own next project um, is going to be about narratives of revenge after the Civil War. And this is a question that emerged from my work on Samuel Hall, who publishes a narrative of his enslavement after emancipation. So he's one of the postbellum slave narrators. And I think he's probably one of the most intriguing and important slave narrators that we're probably not reading uh, regularly. He wrote a book called 47 Years a Slave, which is available online through the wonderful Documenting the American South, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill website that has made available uh, freely and widely all of these slave narratives. But 
his book is so fascinating because when, like many other African-American men, he joins the Union Army, um, he, he comes upon an opportunity when he returns uh, to the site of his enslavement in Tennessee to seek revenge against his uh, former owner. And in fact, as he puts in his narrative, the Union soldiers encourage him to seek revenge. They encourage him, encourage him to, to beat his master's brains out. And he doesn't take that opportunity. Instead, he um, wants his wife and children, and he wants food for the journey. And he gets out of that area as quickly as possible. But of course, he returns um, in the early 1900s to narrate this story. And he also has lots of other um, ideas about segregation at the moment to share. And so what I'm interested in is thinking about what is the post-Civil War narrative of revenge if we think about it through the lens of race. We're pretty familiar with an ex-Confederate white supremacist notion of revenge um, after the Civil War, but what happens if we shift the lens we look at to understand questions of bitterness, resentment, even non-forgiveness from a perspective that includes uh, African-American politicians, authors, slave narrators. And so that's that's my new interest is how do we think about questions of race, revenge, and justice after the Civil War? So I remain interested in the post-Civil War period, and I want to think um, about shifting our narrative of, of vengeance from something that is not just about ex-Confederate um, white supremacist nostalgia, but can revenge actually serve as a tool for justice, especially in the post moment when um, the legal means for redress, especially for African-Americans, are not as widely open? Um, what are the other modes that um, Black citizens have, uh, have sought and imagined? This sounds like a great project. Would you be willing to come back on the New Books Network to talk about it once you've written the book? Uh, yes, I, I would be thrilled. Um, I, I, I would be thrilled. I might have to ask for a little bit more time, um, maybe a decade or so to finish That's it. That's fine. But I will, I will be back if you'll invite me. I'm happy to. <laughs> I mean, I, it does sound fascinating because it moves, you say it moves the lens from the sort of lost cause perspective to to not only, you know, sort of the perspective of the the graciousness of the northern whites, but to the question of what did African Americans actually think and feel in that period, um, which we don't usually hear about, as you note. Um, so I look forward to to sort of your research on it and reading about it. That sounds like an amazing project. Um, so this great book, Untimely Democracy, The Politics of Progress After Slavery, published by Oxford University Press, and I'm sure one can buy it at Oxford University Press's website. But is there any place else that one can purchase your book, Greg? Um, you know, that's actually, that's that's a great question. I have spent so much time trying to get it into various libraries that I haven't thought much about the bookstore market. So I guess I would, I would make an appeal. Um, if you are able to uh, suggest a purchase to your local library, university, or uh, public community library, um, and ask them to consider acquiring it. I would be really grateful. I think that the Oxford site is probably the best place if you want to order online, or if you're going to go to any upcoming conferences. Um, I hope it will be there. The only plug I would make for um, all Oxford books and for lots of other university press books that I think some of the holiday sales um, are still on. I know Oxford still is. 
Um, but we were not too far beyond uh, University Press Week, and I know there's been lots of important discussion about the role that university presses play in our present-day democracy. And so I have tried to make a commitment to buying um, as many books from my fellow teachers and scholars and from university presses, and I availed myself of many of those holiday sales. And so I would just... um, suggest that some of them are still open. And if you would consider supporting one of your colleagues' um, scholarly productions in that way, I would be grateful. And I think it'd be really good for um, higher education and for the landscape of university presses. Thank you. And thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about Untimely Democracy, which is a great and fascinating book, and I recommend it. Thank you, Lily. Thank you.